That just becomes more layered every week. Hi, right, welcome to Vertical Voices. Uh, we're back again after hours of technical difficulties. Um, literally, <laughs> I'm finally back to record another fucking episode. <laughs> well done, Colby. I'm, ju I'm just kind of over it at this point. Uh, Adobe Audition is being a bitch to me today. So, um, first things first, phone check. <laughs> Are our, our, our phones both silenced? They are. Do you know how to silence your phone now? Check, check. Okay. <laughs> good, good with that. Okay. <clears throat> First uh, order of business news, news bit. We're doing a, the news bit. I have a, don't have a name for this segment yet, so it's just the Vertigo News Flash. <laughs> uh, first thing, Sandman television series filming is officially underway. Yay! Two weeks ago, Neil Gaiman reported that they have officially started filming on the series. Uh, the first scene of uh, the dude getting the book for Burgess... I almost called him Burgess Meredith. Um, <laughs> Alexander Burgess? Was that the bad guy? Whatever, the old bad guy. The scene of the dude getting the book for him in the first issue has just been filmed. Then Gaiman said, soon we will hear casting news. Yeah, all right. This is good news. Mm. Assuming that means everyone's been cast, but nothing's been announced yet. So we shall see. Anyway, the Sandman TV show is fucking happening. <laughs> it's been talked about. I mean, some form of filmed media of this story has been talked about for decades. And it's literally it's like celluloid is rolling. And that is amazing. <laughs> so that's, that's my good news for today. Now I've got some bad news. We needed that going in. <laughs> some just astonishingly bad news. I'd like to say a real quick, pardon me for interrupting, but Colby knows that I have a huge thing for spoilers. Like, I don't care if something is spoiled for me. I will go and seek it out because I must know. And so he texts me earlier in the week and is like, oh, I've got news about the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And of course, I'm like, oh, privy, what is it? What is it? He's like, you're going to have to wait. So I would like you to know, sir, that I did not run to the internet. I held off because I want to hear it from your lips. Well, well, well. What is this? News? I'm gonna I'm gonna savor this for a minute then. <laughs> well, you already just spoiled it. It was Snyder Cut news. I didn't say that yet. Yes, you did. <laughs> no, I didn't. I just yes. said I had profound. No, on the recording. Well, I'm sorry. Well, yes, in the text you did. <laughs> no, but I mean on the people listening. Anyway. <laughs> I didn't say that it was Snyder Cut news, but anyway, it is. <laughs> So, in God damn it, I'm getting inundated with texts of pictures of VHS from my friend Chris. I just got ten in a row. Um, <laughs> fucking Christ. You couldn't tell because my phone is silenced. Oh, there's, there's an 11. Um, okay. Uh, so, Snyder Cut News. I'm still just drawing this out. Um, we have another returning cast member. And that cast member is Joe Manganiello. <laughs> I already told you that. Yeah, Joe, Joe Manganiello is coming back to film an extra scene of Deathstroke or whatever. Maybe, maybe, who cares? Um, uh, yeah, cool. More Deathstroke. He's not going to do anything cool in it. I don't. I don't care. Okay. And then also Jared Leto's returning, but that's no big deal. Um. <laughs> yes, Jared Leto is coming back to play the Joker in the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Because. Because you demanded it. <laughs> 
the internet, every like humanity joined hands together and shouted from the hilltops, I want more juggalo joker, <laughs> face tattoo, hot topic dressed, perfectly like manicured and tailored suits joker. That version of the joker, metal grill in his teeth. I want more of that. And Zack Snyder looked down upon us and said, yeah, sure, why not? Have people really been asking for this? No, God, no. Nobody fucking likes this. <laughs> Not a single fucking person wants to see this. Jared Leto doesn't want to do this. <laughs> but when you're an actor and they offer you a shit ton of money, it's like, okay. <laughs> Aside from that terrible performance, I, I would also just like to point out, he, he he's a terrible human being. <laughs> he's kind of a pretentious douche. No, yeah. more than that, he's just a bad guy. Just look him up. Um, <laughs> anyway, somebody pointed this out earlier in the week. That What's interesting about this specific character and this specific take is that this is a role that has been done far better before and since. <laughs> yes, yes. I hated the 2019 Joker movie, but Joaquin Phoenix was fine in it. He's a good actor. Yeah, and he's a hell of a lot better than the Suicide Squad Joker, but whatever. So he's back. I had two thoughts on this, and I couldn't tell which one was more appropriate. I was like, I have absolutely no idea what Snyder's trying to accomplish with this movie now. Nothing about it makes any sense. Right. Yeah, I'm nodding my head vigorously, dear listeners. And I was trying to express my thoughts on it with an analogy, and I can't figure out which one is better. So I wrote down two. So, <laughs> Snyder is like a museless painter slapping color haphazardly onto a canvas in some vain attempt at creation. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, my, that's my first one. And the other one is, Snyder is like a limp, cocked old man grunting and thrusting as he hopes for some form of release, but only grows more aggravated the longer the profane action occurs. <laughs> Hear that? That weird noise there? Yeah, I don't know what the hell that is. Uh, this is Colby, a few days after the original recording. Um, something happened to this file, I have no idea what, and the rest of the audio is just unlistenable. It's uh, exactly like that, it's all scratchy, and it almost sounds like it's doubled up on itself. So this is my vain attempt to try and salvage the episode by re-recording what we lost. I'm going to be speaking to Sophia over Zoom, so the sound quality will probably sound different than usual, but whatever, we do what we can. Um, this is really fucking annoying, <laughs> and uh, the hour of content that we lost is not necessarily going to be replicated. We're just going to kind of do an outline over what we covered, the uh, horror movies and the Lost Boy comic. Um, what we had was pretty good, so this is probably not going to be as good, but whatever. Um, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, here is uh, the Lost Boys episode, take two. Hello, we're back for recording round two. As I just mentioned, uh, the old recording was all fucked up. I don't know what it was, but I'm super goddamn annoyed by it. Uh, so this is me, Colby. This is Sophia. Via the phone. Tried to use Zoom and it wouldn't record, so fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are regardless, so this is how much we care, people. We yeah. want to make sure that you hear us. 
So I had a couple more like really, really funny bits about the Snyder Cut that were lost to time. They were, they were lost uh, in the ether like a fart in the wind. Uh, so after that, we uh, we had a little bit about uh, Halloween movies. So, have you been participating in the uh, what thirty one days of, of Halloween movies, scary movies, whatever the fuck that's called? Yes. What did you call it? Like Octerror? Oh yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, Octerror movies. Octorror, maybe. Yes. October, October. Some, something along those lines. Yeah. It was it was very clever. Yeah. Well, we'll never know now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, to answer your question, I I have been and. Like we covered before, my list is a little bit all over the place, but okay. I have a feeling there's a particular film on my list that uh, you would like to talk about. Oh honestly, my. I, <laughs> honestly, I would like to talk about it too because I'm still. I mean, this is this might sound a little extreme, but I'm I'm wondering if I might need a therapy session over this movie. <laughs> yes, uh, Martyrs, directed mm. by uh, Pascal Laguerre. Uh, I think it's. Hold on, I just watched this movie the other day as well. So, <laughs> um, but okay. of course, I think it's Pascal Laguerre. Laguerre, thank I, you. I think I don't know. I'm not French. <laughs> <laughs> The the new French extremity, I believe, is what it's called. Yes. The yes. movement. It's a, a film movement that is very visceral, violent, gory, horror, uh, and with with a very nihilistic worldview. Indeed, to say the least. Uh, you and I have talked about this sh- uh, subgenre before, and it's just really never been my cup of tea. But then. You know, this is one of those movies that I think you yourself recommended it to me, and then some more of my friends who have seen it and appreciate it. What disturbed me the most was that I watched this and another uh, French horror film inside back to back. So <laughs> I, I needed a little bit of a come down after that. Inside is another example of the new French extremity. Another extremely gory horror movie. A little more focused, I guess, than uh, Martyrs. Plot isn't quite as meandering. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I, uh, I sent you a, a text the other day when you were watching it. It's a very gooey movie. Right. <laughs> to, to say the least. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I still, <laughs> I'm still processing how I feel about both of those movies. I... I don't know, it's kind of one of those ones that, like, I just need to let sink in for a while because I'm sure the director was saying something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it is yet. What do you think of that movie? I, I really like Martyrs, and I think it's, uh, I think it obviously, so I don't want to say too much about it just because obviously we spoil things a lot on this show, but something, <laughs> something like Martyrs where I, I don't feel like a lot of people have seen it and I would like them to. <laughs> And uh, it, it's it's interesting to me because you can talk about the first probably ten minutes of that movie, 
and it sounds like you're spoiling everything, but it's really just the setup. The movie starts with a little girl escaping a factory, and it's clear that she's been kept there for months. Um, then it kind of shows her growing up, and then it cuts to, uh, was it 15 years later? Of, of a suburban family having breakfast, like the little kids eating his cornflakes and arguing with his sister, and mom and dad are talking about, oh, you know, you gotta, gotta make sure to have a good day at school there, son, and, you know, make sure uh, you gotta, gotta, gotta study hard so you can get into law school. And, and just like the most boring pedestrian family stuff in the world. And then suddenly somebody comes in with a shotgun and fucking murders them all in the, the most violent massacre that you can put in a movie. And you, you learn uh, that, that the woman with the shotgun is the little girl. That's when the movie starts. <laughs> yeah. Like. Which is, <laughs> exactly. And for anyone else, you could, that would be the whole movie. And yeah. it would be a perfectly fine movie. You could do a lot of things with that. But uh, it's, it's definitely, it's not revenge. It really doesn't have much to do with any sort of closure or any, uh, I guess, any climax to what we would expect. Mm-hmm. And look, maybe that's the whole point of the movie is that I think maybe that movie is just about pain. Yeah, it's just, it's, uh, it's, the nihilism of of the the fact that life is suffering and uh, you you watch this character uh try vainly to get over her uh, trauma and the trauma is manifested a specific way in the movie which i also don't want to talk about uh, but no matter what she can't get over it and even that isn't even the main plot of the movie <laughs> because then it takes about 15 turns from there Ends in a in a you know brutal Gren Gunal ending. I love that word so much. That's another thing that we I explained last time that uh, we we now lost. So I suppose I should go into that again. But Gren Gunal was a uh, theater in Paris in like the 1930s, I think, that was just famous for its profoundly gory, unsettling theater productions. Um, they were it was like it was like short stories that really only purpose was to shock the audience and ended in ironic, violent, bloody endings. <laughs> it's the perfect descriptor for martyrs. And yeah. uh, I, I agree with you in that I think people should watch it. But, you know, definitely if you're sit, sitting down this Halloween with friends and you're wondering, hey, what scary movie we should watch, um... Definitely read the room first. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that! I would, I would just, I would pop that movie in and just be like, "Strap in, guys," because uh, <laughs> I, I don't care if you want to see it or not. This is happening, and your <laughs> eyes are never going to be the same. <laughs> what about? Uh, tell me about yours. You had a very specific film also yeah. that you wanted to bring up. Yeah. So last time, again, in the original recording, I talked about quite a few movies, all the. The movies that I've watched this Halloween season, like uh, The Cell, which is a favorite of mine. Angel Heart, which was a fun um, uh, like detective noir horror story with uh, Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. Uh, da, 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 I don't know, a few other stuff. Oh, the Lost Boys sequels, which were shit. <laughs> and then a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I discovered this movie called Death Machine. It was an early 90s uh, action sci-fi horror movie 
directed by Stephen Norrington. It fucking blew me away. <laughs> so it, it's on Amazon Prime, but it's the like VHS full screen version of the movie, which I found out after watching it that there's like a director's cut on Blu-ray, but only in Spain, that retains the original aspect ratio and basically fixes any plot holes the movie has. So I watched it on the shitty aspect ratio, and I fucking loved it, but I knew I was missing something, so I immediately bought that Blu-ray. Uh, when we when we record our next episode, I'll go into the differences and stuff more. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I actually tried to watch it on Saturday, but like you said, because of the, the ratio and the framing, you can obviously tell when, when you, know, you should be seeing things that should be in the frame, but they're not. Exactly. Uh, so it was frustrating in that respect, but it sounds like a killer movie. Yeah. I actually, the first time I watched it, I almost turned it off because there's a sight gag that gets ruined in full screen. So the villain in the movie is played by Brad Dourif, and there's a part where he's, like, threatening this CEO guy, played by Richard Brake, and he knocks him down, Brad Dourif does, and then he reaches out to, to like, help him up off the ground, and when Richard Brake grabs his hand, the hand comes off like it's like a like a gag like fake hand and he like looks on in horror but the way the full screen is framed you don't see the hand come out of the sleeve and then you don't see the reaction like you don't see him holding the fake hand and then you don't see brad duraf's real hand pop out it's just framed on their faces and it looks fucking horrible (laughs) and I, i watched it and i was thinking to myself i know what this gag is but i can't see it and like that's so frustrating like uh, when this whole pandemic nonsense is over and done with that movie night at your house is going to be really interesting mm. it'll be a double bill between death machine and martyrs mm. and there will be a uh, pork ribs for dinner something <laughs> like that yeah something nice and gooey <laughs> <laughs> there you go but um you got any movies coming up here we are a few days from halloween that's true so you know for a long time for the past i don't know 10 years or so the ultimate Halloween movie to me was Trick or Treat, uh, the Mike Doherty movie. It's a series of short stories that are all interconnected uh, that take place on Halloween. And they're kind of uh, linked by this supernatural character that's like the, the embodiment of Samhain. And uh, it's, a, it's a cool movie. So recently I've, I've been putting aside Trick or Treat for a Halloween viewing and I replaced it with a movie, uh, Murder Party. Oh, yes. <laughs> Murder- that movie is awesome. Yeah. Murder Party is a really low-budget uh, film by uh, Jeremy Salnier. Salnier, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's an excellent director who's gone on to do some great things like Blue Ruin and uh, Green Room and Hold the Dark. And but this is his first movie, and it's... First uh, co-writing collaboration with Macon Blair, who also acts in all of his movies. And it's just a fucking amazing, ultra-low-budget horror comedy. <laughs> it's, it's just as hilarious as it is gory, um, and it like strikes that balance perfectly. It's just you know about a schlubby uh, loser guy who f- finds an invitation to go to a Halloween party... So he makes his own costume and shows up and finds out there's a bunch of art students that are trying to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that movie was hilarious. Uh, 
know I need to rewatch it though for this Halloween season. I um, believe I believe it's still on Netflix. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna rewatch that. I remember laughing quite loudly at some parts. But um uh, oh gosh, who uh Megan Blair's in it too, isn't he? Yeah, Megan Blair's in all of uh Stallman's oh, yeah. movies. He plays the dude with the like werewolf costume. He he like sucks down a bunch of moonshine and then does he go out to smoke or something and lights his face on fire <laughs> and melts his dog costume to his face? It's pretty horrific, but hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much every every horrible you know mishap that could befall him in his attempts to be a murderer pretty much does, yeah. and it's all it's almost like Coyote and Roadrunner, and it's hilarious though. That's my that's my uh, end of the Halloween season movie. Do you have one? Kind of like we discussed earlier in our, our unfortunately lost episode. Um, I've just been going by what I'm feeling. Um, <laughs> so it depends on what mood I'm in for that day. And I've got quite a few on my list that um, just kind of speak to me. And we'll see. We'll see how things play out on the 21st. I keep getting the, this idea in my head that I'm going to save uh, high tension Wait, did you Halloween. did you say the 21st? No, I did not. I don't know. I'm going to have to review the tape, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, if I did, I don't know what I'm talking about. So. <laughs> but So, high, high Tension, another new French extremity film. Yes, which I actually did see when it first came out. And I hated it, and I think it's bad, and I think I'll probably hate it again, but, you know, I don't know, you're warping my brain, man, hanging out with you, I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, you only saw it once, you should watch it again and see what you think this time, so, we'll see. It's just, it, it's funny to me, because for somebody that claims to not like this genre, you sure watch a lot of movies in it. <laughs> well, honestly, I have watched more French extremity in this past month than I think I probably ever have in my life. No. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure what that's due to, but um, <laughs> but yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where the night takes us. <laughs> All right. High tension. Yeah, I I saw that in the theaters. And I think I've seen it once since then. I thought it was fine. Like I really liked the gore effects in it. There's a twist towards the end that I don't know if it really landed 100. percent Yes, that's what I'm still kind of on the fence on because I remember, <laughs> I vaguely remember it and I remember watching it and being like, oh, well, that kind of let, lets down everything that came before. Yeah. But up until then, I have to admit, I was very much on the edge of my seat. I, I can't remember. Go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I, I like the twist. I just feel like it should have been implemented a little bit better because there's a few logical bits where it's like, well, if this is how it's happened, then the fuck was that thing doing there? You know, like there's, there's a few things that just don't quite line up exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm interested to see if it plays out any better on a second viewing as opposed to the first. And, uh, again, I saw it when I was very, well, let's see, that movie came out in like what? 2004? It, it was released in 2003 initially, but I don't think it came to America until like 2005. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I was pretty much a hayseed when it came to a lot of horror films at that stage in my life. That was definitely not a movie that my parents would have let me watch, yeah. even with them in the in the room. <laughs> I don't think they would have been down with that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no, I'm 
interested to see if, if it plays out any better upon subsequent viewings. I can actually tell you, because of Letterboxd, exactly when it hit theaters in the U.S. Because I logged it when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Letterboxd. So I saw it June 10th, 2005. Okay. So it came out summer 2005 in the U.S., which is, that's strange for a, a, like a, a low-budget French horror movie to actually get a theatrical release in the U.S. Now, why do you think it did? I don't know. I think it was a mixture of the director, Alexander Aja, Aja, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, he, was, he was getting big at the time. Um, it's low-budget. It, depending on who it was produced by, they may have a... I don't know. They may have an in with uh, the U.S. studios. I don't know. I Honestly, I'm just speculating. I have honestly no idea. But uh, for some reason, it got released theatrically here. Well, I, I do remember taking a picture, a, a picture of one of the stills in the movie to my hairdresser at the time of the, the lead actress and being mm -hmm. like, yeah, do my hair like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't very big on, on the, in our little corner of the world. Mm -hmm. Her, uh, the, the lead actress's name is Cécile de France. Okay, beautiful which, name. Yeah, which, for those of you who don't speak French, means Cécile from France. <laughs> ah, go figure. <laughs> Maybe of France, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so, yes, that could be my Halloween pick, or honestly, I could just be sitting down with, you know, fun-sized Snicker bars and Hocus Pocus, so we'll see what plays out. Oh, that's a pretty wide swing there. <laughs> we like to leave room for options. All right, so now it's time to get into the actual reason that we're recording this episode. The reason that we can't dump it, because this is a sequel to our Lost Boys episode. Because today we are talking about the uh, Lost Boys Vertigo comic by Tim Seeley, Scott Godlewski, Trish Mulvihill, and Michael Wiggum. And then also, I, I mentioned this last time we recorded, uh, I'm going to do that a lot, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the fact that the cover art is by Tony Harris on, this is a six-issue miniseries, uh, the covers for each issue are by Tony Harris, but he's not credited on, on like, the cover of this, and that fucking annoys me, because he's one of my favorite artists. And honestly, I don't know why they wouldn't credit him, because... And this will launch us into a discussion about the art. The cover art is so good and so yeah. compelling, and it makes you want to read the comic. And then you open the comics, and the art isn't bad. Grant, I'm not saying that. Of course, um, it, it's very serviceable as a comic book. Yeah. And there, is, there are some images that look good, but um, it really kind of lacks the the depth and the kinetic energy that the Harris covers have. Yeah. And it doesn't have that Schumacher color or style that the movie has. Um, yes. It's very bog standard comic book art, which again, isn't bad, but that I believe I remember from our last discussion, that was, that was like your biggest uh, sticking point to this is that the art just looks like comic art. It, it doesn't, doesn't have the, the vibrancy of the movie. That, that can be hard to translate when you're talking about coming from one storytelling medium to another. But um, again, as we previously discussed, uh, 
we've looked at numerous comic books so far in this podcast where we've seen panels and just, you know, been incredibly wowed by the by the visuals and like, oh, that's like a storyboard for a movie. Like I can see the the plot thread just in the drawings, even without the speech bubbles. And, you know, there's there's some again, there's some cool stuff in, in these comics in terms of visuals and I'm like, oh yeah, I like that. That's that's fun. But it just kind of still only feels half done to me, visually-wise. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I'm, I, it took me a little bit of time to get used to it. Because, like, my notes for the first issue were like, this guy doesn't look like Jason Patrick. This guy doesn't look like Corey Feldman. And then after, <laughs> after I kind of got over that, because realistically, like, with rights issues, they probably weren't allowed to draw him, the characters, to look like the actors. So I, I get that. And once I kind of got past that, I was okay with it. But I really liked the story overall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to turn that on you and, and ask you to give us the book report, please, Colby. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> so it takes place, I don't know, what is it, six months or a year or something after the first movie. Michael is now working at an old folks' home. Uh, Sam is working at the comic shop with the Frog Brothers, right? Yep. Is he working there? Okay. And uh, Star and Laddie are still living with the family. And Grandpa is uh, uh, leading uh, the, the team of old vampire hunters in Santa Carla. But not everything is peaceful because uh, <laughs> pretty soon a bunch of lady vampires, the, is it the Blood Bells? Yes. They show up and start just fucking shit up, and they kill all the vampire hunters and, and poor Gramps, and uh, it's uh, that that makes the Frog Brothers now the most experienced vampire hunters in town, and uh, they all have to to team up and stop these new vampires and save the day. <laughs> Very good, good summation. <laughs> <laughs> and I last time we talked, I I, I do want to hit this this plot point because uh i liked my little story i told and i'm nothing if not vain um, but you had an issue with the grandpa's death at the beginning yes i did i don't know i just felt that uh in in retrospect i can see your points that you made which no no, no, no. Just, just, tell, just tell your point we'll get to that <laughs> well i I just felt that Grandpa Emerson is such a such a funny character in the movie, and he is the total oddball. And throughout the whole movie, they just kind of set him up to be this wacky, just you know, um, unawares old guy, like this old hippie. Um, but when it turns out, you know, with the closing line of the movie, you know, all the things of living in Santa Carla that I couldn't stomach all the goddamn vampires, um, you know, he's, he actually turns out to be someone who is very aware of what's going on in the community. And uh, not only that, but obviously he's a part of a group of hunters. And I just felt like they killed him off too soon. And I felt like there were other characters that um, perhaps you could kill off, not because they're not important, but just because... I don't know, I just wanted more time with Grandpa Emerson and his training of the Frog Brothers, and it just felt like a 
convenience to me that the writers put in there to get him out of the way and to have that sad, dramatic moment. Yeah. Well, and you also suggested killing off the mother and or laddie. Yes, I was thinking both, actually, a two-for-one kind of deal. (laughs) Yeah. So, pretend this is the first time I'm saying this. So, have you ever heard of Christopher McQuarrie? I have not. (laughs) (laughs) So, Christopher McQuarrie is a writer and director. He did the last couple Mission Impossible movies. He's one of the writers on Usual Suspects and uh, Way of the Gun. He was hired to, like, punch up, I think it was Mission Impossible 4. And in that original script, Tom Cruise's character, uh, Ethan Hunt, um, is, like, haunted by the death of his wife. She had died before the movie, and he was, you know, like, now he's, like, an agent on the edge because his wife's dead, blah, blah, blah. And Macquarie, when he was rewriting it, changed the, the plot point to, at the beginning, you think the wife is dead, but then in the end, it's revealed that she's alive, and he just can't be with her. Um, and so he created this fake story of her being dead so that nobody would come after her. And his reasoning was, if she's dead, this character is never going to be happy. The t- Tom Cruise's character is never going to be happy. And you're never going to conclude the movie with him getting back to 100%. You can get to like 90% or 99%, but it's never going to be 100 And the audience isn't going to be fulfilled if they can't get back to 100%. And I feel like that's the reason that Grandpa died instead of the mom or laddie. It's kind of two-pronged. Number one, if the parents, or uh, sorry, if the mom and the kid are dead, then your victory is going to be more hollow. Because the whole point of the, of the mother is so that her kids can save her and their family unit can be whole. Whereas if Grandpa dies, you know, he's old, so it's an acceptable loss in saving the others. But then that also, the other reason for Grandpa's death is that it forces the heroes to rise to the occasion, you know? Like, he's the one who knows what's going on, you take him off the board, and now the, uh, the only geniuses you have behind are the fucking Frog Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if, they're the, if they're the smartest ones in the room, then you know you're in the shit. <laughs> We're in trouble, Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, those are good points. And thinking about it now, uh, the Lost Boys movie really isn't that dark. So if you were to kill off Lucy, um, I don't know, you might be able to get away with Laddie, although, you know, killing a kid in in 1980s, um, in 1980s action films is, is, I I don't think that people were ready to go there. Yeah. Um, But yeah, her death probably would have just been too dark. To, uh, to get around. In another story, it would probably work fine, but for something like this where the whole point is to save the day and uh, you know, for, the, for the family unit to be maintained and everyone to be happy in the end, I think if you take the mom off the board, it's, it's, it's going to feel like a hollow victory. Fair enough. I can feed you that narrative <laughs> point, sir. So what, what did you think of the... Uh, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the uh, pros and cons of this series. Like, what... what really stood out to you that was something that you appreciated and uh, what are some of the things that you could have really taken or left yeah uh so the biggest pro for me is the introduction of nico petropolis (laughs) aka the believer (laughs) aka the sexy sex man (laughs) (laughs) 
So the sexy sax man from the first movie, the greased up meathead playing the saxophone, is uh, reintroduced into this story as a vampire hunter who has been rejected over and over by Grandpa and his cronies. And so he teams up with Sam and kind of leads him into the into the fight towards the end of the story. I liked him as the mentor-type character to Sam. Yes. Yeah. He, he, uh, he, it, he's a very interesting character, and I love the way that he's introduced in the comic and mm-hmm. how they capitalized on that fun bit of cheese from the first movie because everyone like even if you don't like the lost boys film or it's really not your thing everyone remembers pectoral sax man yeah. they just do yeah and, it's, uh, it's it's a fun it's a fun bit of recontextualizing that character like just taking taking this this wacky image that had like 10 seconds of screen time and then turning him into you know the hero of a couple issues of this was a lot of fun <laughs> it really was. It really was. And he has, the, I mean, he believes so much in what he's doing. He's like, uh, he's kind of like the Frog Brothers, like if the Frog Brothers were actually good vampire hunters. <laughs> they were actually useful. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, that was the other point we brought up, was I I love it how um, the baby oil he rubs on yeah. himself is actually holy anointed oil. Yeah, when, like, vampires grab him, they burst into flames or whatever. And th- there's that scene where Sam, tr- like, tugs on his arm, and his hand just slips off, and he goes, My God, you are slippery. It's like, it's like trying to grab a baby otter. <laughs> saying that it's I can't remember the way they phrase it but that they has like Max's blood still running through him but latent or something they call it like like I don't know or deactivated or something like that because it's still in there it's just it's just not turning him into a vampire I guess so something like that I can't remember the exact Uh, word but they they bring it up and say that it's still in him but but all that kind of doesn't really matter because isn't I mean David is back so who the fuck cares? Why don't you, you know, just cut David's hand and smear that blood on there? <laughs> right, and it would give David more of a reason to be in the series, honestly. Yeah. Which that's probably my biggest negative, is the fact that they bring back Kiefer Sutherland's David and don't do a goddamn thing with him. Exactly. 
And he is the one character, but you were mentioning earlier how they're drawn to avoid the exact likeness of the actors. Um, does he look exactly like Kiefer Sutherland? No. But um, even if you had never seen the movie before and you were to open up a page of that comic book, you'd be like, hey, that kind of looks like a young Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> he passes the squint test far better than anyone else in there. Right, right. And he, uh, it's just, that, that's my biggest my biggest gripe, too, is that, uh, you know, he, he just doesn't have much to do here. Yeah. And then there's kind of like that fake-out with a sequel, which I don't know if we'll ever get, or they were even planning to do. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I think this was supposed to possibly be an ongoing series that didn't happen. So I, they probably had plans to do a sequel, but we'll never see it. There you go. Way to get our hopes up. Yeah. In terms of the tone, I, I agree with you. I like the humor. I like the story overall. And um, it does a good job of keeping the spirit of impudence that the movie has. Yeah. Tim Seeley's a really um, clever writer. There, there's, a, there's a scene early on when Michael is working at the old folks' home, uh, rubbing old ladies' corns. And uh, his boss comes in. He's like, hey, Michael, uh, before you go, I need you to come in and move Mr. Andrews because he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) So casually. Yeah. And it's just like there's a great beat there. We're just staring at him like, yeah, I need you to move him uh, because he's dead. (laughs) The end. (laughs) Just another night on the job. (laughs) And I I wish I could remember. Yeah, his his boss has a name. Of course, I can't remember it at the moment. But that other part later on in the series we talked about where one of the resident, excuse me, one of the residents at the home, Agnes, asks him, where's Michael today? And his boss is basically like, I don't know. He never showed up for a shift, so I got to clean up whatever this is. And he's like (laughs) basically scrubbing a huge puddle of blood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and what what is it that's not right at the old folks' home? Oh, Grandma is a vampire. Yeah. They're all vampires. <laughs> Which that that's like one of my favorite reveals in this comic. Like in the very end, they they set up these these like demonic ancient vampires as the big bad, and then almost as soon as they're introduced, they're killed off. <coughs> and, right. then, and then it's revealed that the actual big bad is this old woman at a nursing home and her team of octogenarian vampires <laughs> except 75 and 85 year old women with fangs and talking about their grandkids <laughs> and killing everybody at the home yeah. like all the staff yeah. oh wasn't there there's a um there's a particularly clever way in which they dispatch oh. the octogenarian vampires that's right so like they, they comment that that uh, what Michael is so good at rubbing the corns, and uh, <laughs> when he gets kidnapped by the blood bells, he can't go to work. So his boss orders this, um, like, oh, what's it called? Uh, like, like a silver nitrate spray or something for their feet. But the old ladies don't want to use it because they're vampires. Because they realize it's silver nitrate, so then that's what they use to uh, to kill him. Yeah, really, really clever. I like the the witticisms and the fun clever way they come up with to defeat the vampire. It's all very much in the same vein, bad pun intended, 
with the movie, uh, there was something else that stuck out to both of us. And of course, I'm trying to remember what it is now. So it, it uh, must not have stuck out that much. But I feel like it's a, uh, oh, yes, yes, excuse me. What did you think of Billy? Oh, yeah. I, I, I thought she was an interesting, what, like, pseudo-villain. She's introduced as, like, the big villain. But then you find out she's the Darth Vader to the... The Emperor, or whatever the, the old lady. And I I didn't mind her. I, I think I liked her more than you did. I, I did like her. I just wish that they would have given us her backstory sooner. Oh, that's right. Because I think her relationship with Star, who has a much uh, bigger role in this, this comic sequels than she does in the film, um, no offense to Jamie Gertz. I mean, Jamie Gertz does a fine job with, with Star in the movie, um, but she's really not much more than the, you know, the hot mystery girl yeah, exactly. with a tragic past. Yeah. And she is given more backstory here, and I like how her and Billy interact with each other, and obviously they have a, a past together of some sort. I just wish that we knew more about Billy sooner because I kind of felt like her backstory was shoehorned in at the end of the comic. Okay. And, and I didn't mind it because, again, like, like I mentioned last time, if it had been in the beginning, I just would have been like, whatever, get to the good stuff. Like, I... <laughs> I, I wouldn't have. I probably wouldn't have even remembered that I read it if, if it was at the beginning, because the story doesn't start till you introduce the, the recognizable characters. And True. I think I think the way it opens with Sam recapping the movie to that dude in the comic shop. <laughs> I think that's a far stronger opening than than giving Billy's backstory, and and it would have also been just like, well, who the hell is this character? So I, I think giving it towards the end where you know this character and you understand what she's trying to accomplish, I think that makes more sense. And I also like the fact that it's not a huge involved backstory. Because again, she's a new character, so however interesting she is, she's not going to be as interesting as anyone that was in the original movie. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Um, and I, I think there's... I'm not sure how you would do it, but I think there's ways you could do it... Um, and, you know, brevity being the soul of wit and whatnot, that you could maybe even space out her backstory in a few panels so you're getting glimpses of something that you know is tying into the present of the story. Oh, man, um, I, I would have hated that. <laughs> oh, really? I hate really? that. I, I hate that convention. When it's, oh, really? When, when you get clips of a backstory, like, especially in a comic. And when you get... Oh. When you get clips of it and you're like, oh, I wonder how this is going to play out. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit. I just tell me. <laughs> and especially now, especially in this book, again, because everyone else is from the, the movie, if a new character's story was that key to a sequel, I would have felt completely let down by it. I liked Sam's recap better than I like the actual movie. <laughs> Blasphemer. <laughs> well, I just I love the fact that yeah, he's he's working in the comic shop and he's trying to sell that customer on this cool independent comic about these two vampire hunter brothers and their friends who take on the suckheads of Santa Carla and save the soul of the town from the undead, da-da-da-da-da. It makes it sound like just this really epic journey, and the guy is basically like, 
Cool, whatever. Do you have a Dark Knight Returns? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Alas. <laughs> I'm sure that's a deep cut comment on the state of comic book fandom. <laughs> Un- unwilling to try anything new and stuck in their own ways. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Your overall thoughts and feelings is what is what would you rate this? Overall, I give this a vertigo. I actually liked it better than the movie because I thought it was really clever written. Obviously, like I said, it falls down a little bit in the art, but I, I really liked how clever it was, and I thought it had a fucking amazing ending. Better than the movie's ending. Just the I've never seen an old folks home full of vampires. And I'm glad I'm glad that I did now. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I think that would translate marvelously to film. I think yeah. that would be a riot. And and another thing I really like about this is it's it's clearly the work of a fan, but mm-hmm. it's it's it doesn't feel like masturbatory fan fiction yes that's a, that's actually a, a very good way to phrase it yeah like it, <laughs> because, go ahead i was just gonna say it, it feels very competent and very well written and in a loving way it does it does and that brings uh that brings me to the actual movie sequel oh, to yeah. the lost boys <laughs> Which does feel like masturbatory fan fiction. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I I haven't seen the thirst. It's just not something that I've got around to, and it's honestly not a, a high priority. But I have seen the tribe, and uh, the tribe had like a couple funny lines in it. But on the whole, like you said, it's very much feels like. Um, a studio's effort to repackage and resell a beloved property without understanding why people love it in the first place. And Tim Seeley does seem to have uh, an affinity for the actual Mm. movie. And I think, you know, you got to hand it to him there. I mean, you and I disagree, obviously, on some of the narrative (laughs) points, but he definitely is a fan of the movie and it shows. It also, it, it lets the characters be the characters from the movie. Um, and which is which is the biggest issue with the thirst, the third movie, is that it turns Edgar Frog into like a goddamn superhero, like this like haunted vigilante who's just too fucking cool for words. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's just a it's a clear vanity project for Corey Feldman. And that that's really too bad because it sounds like he took the direction that Joel Schumacher gave him. I think you and I talked about this on our commentary for the movie, how when Corey Feldman was doing the role, Joel Schumacher told him, like, go and rent every single Sylvester Stallone and Chuck Norris and just action flicks that you can get your hands on. I want you to do it like that. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the whole thing that's so funny about the Frog Brothers is that they don't think they're funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which... That actually reminds me, I just recently read like a snippet of an interview from Corey Feldman where he talked about being a child star, most of the time people just want you to play yourself. Just get up there, look cute, be funny, say your lines, get the fuck out of here. And uh, he said the reason he loves the role of Edgar Frog so much is because Joel Schumacher let him and worked with him to create a character. And he, mm. he said at that point that was the first time in his career where he felt like he was actually playing an interesting original character instead of just himself. To, to his credit, I think it shows. I mean, I think that's why the Frog Brothers are still so beloved, honestly. Mm. I mean, 
when you see a lot of memorabilia for the movie, it either has to do with David or it has to do with the Frog Brothers. Yeah, so. exactly. So what what uh, what was your ranking for this awesome book? <laughs> for, for this for this clearly vertigo story. Well, I just must uh, I just must need my carburetors cleaned or something because for me it was a bit of a vertigo. And you could argue that I'm probably judging it too much coming from the movie because I absolutely love the movie. I have a very strong affinity for it. Um, so maybe it is unfair for me to grade it based off of my love for an already existing property in that different storytelling format. But again, I think it's the best sequel to The Lost Boys that we will probably ever get. It works well in that regard. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's unfair to, to judge it against the movie because it's a sequel to it. You know, it, it depends on the movie. So I, I get it. I mean, I just in terms of like, um, oh, the things that you can show in movies that you can't always show in comic books, even though they're both, again, visual storytelling devices. Yeah. I'm going to wax poetically here about a part from the movie that I really love and appreciate from a uh, storytelling and filmmaking perspective. But the uh, the scene around the bonfire where they kill all those uh, party goers. Yeah. It's like Schumacher does such a good job of leading up to that. Up until that point, all of the vampire attacks that we see are from the vampire's point of view, like the shark in Jaws. Um, It isn't until that moment where we not only see the attacks from the vampire's point of view, but we see them from Michael's point of view. And they're really bloody and scary, and it looks really painful because they're in there. Like it's not like a seductive thing where they're hypnotizing these people and then gently suckling on their necks. They're like you know cracking spines and peeling scalps off with their teeth, and it's just a great moment in the movie where Schumacher shows you like, oh, this is the price you pay for being you know young and living forever. Yeah. And. Um, there really wasn't a moment like that in the comic book where I was like, aha. Yeah. Um, maybe the closest it got was probably the, uh, the reveal of the big bad, which I was like, okay, that's good. That's, <laughs> yeah. Hats off to you, sir. That was good. <laughs> so, okay. So yeah, we both agree. This is a far superior comic to the movie. <laughs> and, uh, well, you really don't even need to watch the movie. You can just read the book. <laughs> Yes, yes. Beloved classic, cult classic. Just skip that one, guys. You can get You can get caught up real easily. (laughs) You won't miss anything. (laughs) Sam is an excellent storyteller. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, he'll he'll catch you right up to speed. Okay, so anything else? I think we're good with this now. I think we've done a very good salvaging job, sir, if I may say so. I don't know. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see when I listen back if I just end up deleting all of this. <laughs> Putting out a five-minute-long episode. <laughs> well, hopefully not. My, my fingers are crossed. But uh, considering how much time we had between when we recorded it on Saturday and talking now, I just hope that it comes out for you. I know you put a lot of hard work into it. We shall see. So, um, 
Next time, we are going to be diving into November. So that means we will be uh, 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 going into Noir-vember. <laughs> Your favorite. The next time we convene, we'll dive into Noir-vember with my favorite Noir comic, <laughs> Sandman Mystery Theater. Yay, all right. So, yeah. Don't we'll miss it, folks. Do that. Fingers crossed. Um, <laughs> we won't have any technical issues with that. Psst, I already know that we won't because I already recorded it. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> so, um, ah, oh, fuck. I gotta do the wrap-up of the episode. I don't know. Fucking follow us on social media. Was it Twitter? Twitter at Vertigo Voices. Instagram, Vertigo Voices. You can email us, vertigovoices at gmail.com. And uh, just download on literally every single podcasting app there is. Absolutely. We are so very available. We're kind of easy that way. And then we'll, uh, yeah, next time we'll talk and if you have anything to add. Actually, never mind. Don't. I don't know why I was saying that. Um, <laughs> anyway, we'll be back together again after uh, Halloween. So everyone listening, have a, a nice Halloween. Go uh, tear open some throats and drink some blood. <laughs> and enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. Keep listening, keep reading, and we will check in with you next time. Hooray! We did it. Again. <laughs> uh, this has been a, it's been a rough one. All right. I got, I, oh, shit. I got to hit stop.